Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I usually sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. However, you know the season that we're in, the tides have shifted and changed, and now we're in the oop and the gloop, the rancid and all things gross, when we take an uncomfortably close look at the aesthetics of disgust. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and my next guest to lead me on this masochistic journey is a horror writer and critic with bylines at Bloody Disgusting, Manor Vellum, and Certified Forgot. He is also the co-host of the Movies for Life podcast. Beautiful greetings to Brian Kuyper. It's great to be here. So happy to have you on. I just want to make sure I got that right, Kuyper. You sure did. I was nailed. Uh, I, it. I was gonna. I was gonna say. All right. I never hear my name correctly the first try. So that's <sighs> awesome. It's fantastic. Uh, you'd think after so many people on my show, I would have thought to ask you before recording, <laughs> but here we are. Um, it's all oh good. well. It's proof of my uh, dedication, I suppose, to jump in at last second, like yourself. So thank you so much. Uh, I'll admit to everybody. Uh, you know, I've been you know traversing my old stomping grounds and taking some time off, and uh, yeah, this kind of caught up on me. So I'm really happy you jumped in for this one, Brian. Happy to do it. I was glad I had the time to watch the movie again, and uh, you know, get it all together. Hopefully, have some reasonably coherent thoughts about it. <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm really excited to talk about this one. Oh, me too. Me too. Before we get into that. Because uh, I'm in the same boat as you. I hadn't seen it in a while. So I'm also mm-hmm. like, oh my God. I... So, okay, listeners, because uh, this was a little slapdash on my part, I do apologize. There won't be a quote for this episode. I wasn't able to get that in time. Mixing holidays and doing the podcasts can get a little iffy. But hey, this is a little bit of the real world, which is something I actually like to share a bit on the podcast. Share the people side of things. And people can be chaotic. So forgive me there. Um, but, you know... We're both in the same boat, so thank you again, Brian, for for jumping in the way you have. You've been a big trooper, and, you know, you gave me a great day to watch a great film. But before we get into the film, I want to ask you, Brian, the age-old question. How did you first get into horror? Is this a a love that you've had for some time, or is it something that you've kind of built over the years? You know, it's funny. It's kind of been, uh, to be honest, there's... It was early to start with. Um, I I can't remember all of the details of it because I was very young. I mean, um, but my we went to this kind of like a educational store, and they had this book that was um, famous monsters of Filmland. It just had these mm. like coloring and activity things, you know, and it had information about all the classic monsters, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, but it also had, you know, a little Godzilla and King Kong thrown in there as well. And I was just became fascinated with that. And uh, so the first horror movie that I remember seeing at all was the 1931 Frankenstein. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. And it, it, I just adored it instantly. And I must've been, like six years old maybe and i 
still, you know, absolutely adore that film. In fact, that, that's actually one of the possibilities I suggested for us to talk about was, uh-huh. was that film. Not long after, though, um, like I remember the movie that we're going to discuss today coming out uh, in the theater. My dad just being like really wanting to see it. And, <laughs> you know, he bought it on videotape and everything. And and I would just get through little bits at a time because I was just kind of a squeamish, kind of scaredy kid, you know. Um, but we can talk about that more in detail when we actually talk about the film <laughs> itself. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I just, when I was in like sixth grade or fifth grade, I started reading Stephen King and uh, my friends really got into horror. And I remember I wasn't really allowed to watch R-rated movies that young, but we would go to sleepovers at my friend's house and she would go to the library and pick up handfuls of horror films for us so i saw halloween 2 and cujo and all these movies fairly early on um at their house and so it was a little bit clandestine but (laughs) my parents didn't seem to care that much by that time you know Uh, Mm -hmm. so it it just kind of uh became a fascination and you know we would watch a lot of um like stephen king adaptations at home even you know, I remember watching uh, Carrie on Christmas Eve and The Shining on Christmas Day with my family huh. uh, one year. <laughs> which interesting Christmas. Quite an experience. But also very early on, I became very interested, very kind of, I would say, incredibly intrigued with A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, mm. the, the, the VHS cover of that just would beckon to me. Mm-hmm. It scared me to death. And I actually have the poster on my wall now. Um, just because that image has always fascinated me so much. And so I read all these books about it. I read the novelizations, all of these things about it. I knew who Wes Craven was. I learned about how they did the special effects and all these things long before I ever saw the movie. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I just found myself, and even my school library would have uh, like famous monsters books um, so I learned all about the Universal and Hammer monsters when I was really, really young. And I would, um, you know, I, I, I like to draw. I would draw all the pictures and everything like that. So it's kind of as far back as I can remember, I was into, you know, the classic monsters. And then it wasn't too long after that where it's like, I really want to see a nightmare on Elm street, but I really am afraid to see a nightmare on Elm street. Um, <laughs> and strangely enough, that was a movie that I, you'd think you'd get these, some of these things hyped up in your brain. Well, um, that wasn't the case with that movie. I absolutely adored it when I finally did see it. Um, and it just kind of grew from there. I think, what is interesting is, uh, I guess, my story from there, I, I became pretty serious with my religious faith starting in high school. Mm-hmm. And um, there was sort of, a, sort of a sense that from, you know, some of the people that I hung out with that maybe horror wasn't so good, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so... I kind of had these periods of time where I would just be like, I don't know if I should. But then uh, I remember when I was in college, I had a really good friend, you know, who who said, um, no. <laughs> I mean, he was actually the son of the music director 
that I, in my church when I was a kid. And he was like, these movies are rad. <laughs> Let's just watch some. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'll watch a movie. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's when I sort of caught up on, on a lot of things was in that period. And, you know, I, I actually, uh, I've been through a few careers, but my first was, uh, I was a, a church music director for about 10 years. Cool. And, um, I, I went to, I went to school for, um, for music education, but then I sort of went on this uh, tangent for a lot of years. And it's not that I didn't like horror or didn't watch it. I did, but I I wasn't as kind of into it for a while because I was just busy and kind of interested in other things for a while. Um, But then uh, after coming, I, I ended up deciding to change careers and uh, actually go into teaching so I, I kept finding, you know, those things I found, you know, like the Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, Freddie kept beckoning me back, it seems like. <laughs> I found that, you know, there was a particularly difficult and challenging period of, of time where um, what kind of helped me through it was horror. And, and it, that was actually just a couple of years ago, to be honest, that I really found myself um, not only sort of enjoying it, but really seeing more of what was going on in it mm-hmm. and wanting to dig in deeply to it. Okay. Oh, sorry to interrupt. I, I'm just very curious. Um, so what kind of stimulated that for you? Was it something that you were noticing yourself already just because of the where you were in life or... Yeah. Was there sort of like a shift in like the mindset of people around you? I'm very curious to hear how this, because it seems like it's a recent thing for a lot of people to uh-huh. kind of read them in this way. And I'm so curious to hear from your perspective, what sort of kind of promoted that for you? Well, it's a, I think it's a series of things. Cause when I was in college, um, I had, I took a, it was, it was a Christian college. I mean, though, um, kind of in name only. We had to take religion classes, but you know, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a campus filled with you know, people of faith exactly. Okay. Which, you know, it was it was so it was a very diverse campus. Right. Um, but you know, religion classes were still required. <laughs> you know, uh, you had to take a couple of, but they were they were pretty interesting. The one uh, one of the ones that I took actually was on New Testament theology, and the uh the professor had us watch a movie you know and just kind of see you know what and the the movie happened to be the spitfire grill which is on its surface is not a religious film but it contains some of these themes and stuff because you know the bible has been used as literature for in in literature in various ways for you know a long long time oh yeah oh yeah uh, and you know some of those Im- some of those images and things pull in uh to to it and that just sort of sparked a curiosity and an interest in me to just not necessarily look for like religious elements in films but just to look at below the surface of right. them more than i had before um because i feel like up until then i had just kind of watched movies on a fairly surface level and just you know, listening to 
uh, different directors really talk about their work. I think the DVD uh, commentary went a long way for that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, for me too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, for me to realize that, you know, there's a lot going on here, you know, that I hadn't thought about. Because if you're watching a film just purely for the entertainment, and there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But I mean, you, there does, there's sometimes you can miss something that is really intended to be there, you know, a real, you know, an underlying theme, um, mm -hmm. a subtext or whatever that is really running through the course of a film um, and how these stories can uh, impact our lives. And uh, that's only gotten to be more the case as, as I have listened to, you know, like deep dive podcasts, you know, that really right. talk about films um, on a level that, you know, how does this movie impact the host or, you know, the filmmaker or society around it, you know, in various ways, I find really fascinating. And I think that probably ends up in a lot of my writing, um, just this interest in those kinds of things. You know? mm -hmm. Well, then it sounds like you were sparked pretty early on with this feeling of, you know, a lot of people say that if you were to see the magician do the trick, you would mm -hmm. not be as impressed or you would lose the magic, right? Right. But I often have been that kid where I'm like, so how did you do it? Because that's yeah. more magical to me. That How do I trick a person? You know? And when it comes to film as well, I was actually talking to my mom the other day just in her kitchen, which is weird for me, but it was awesome to talk to her in the kitchen. And we were just kind of reminiscing. And she was telling me how, like, when we would watch movies... You know, my brother would be into it. He could tell you the story, all that. But as soon as the credits hit, he's like, nice. And he'd walk away where mm -hmm. I was get, I would get upset because yeah. I would want to watch the credits and be like, what is a best boy? What is a gaffer? I don't, <laughs> I, what do these things mean? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, I totally get that. And, and coming from those books as well, I, I think that's really cool that you picked up on this sort of in industry analysis of the monsters of the classic cinema to kind of kick, you know, kick you off where you're, you know, working and, and walking around nowadays. Would you still say that the classic cinema of the thirties is still your favorite or is it just amongst many other times and decades that you love? I just kind of love everything. I, Good answer. You know, I, I gotta <laughs> say, um, I mean, when it comes, I, okay, so this is, you know, a little bit of an early plug, I guess, here. It's not intended to be, but <laughs> but I I uh, write a column for Bloody Disgusting called Gods and Monsters, which is about pre, I should say mostly, pre-1970s horror. And uh, when I pitched it to John, I was just like, I, to John Squires, the editor there, I just wanted to write about these movies that ha for the impact that they have on the movies that people always talk about now. Right. Which, you know, seems to be the eighties and later, you know, that seems to be what so much of the focus is on. And I love the, f the horror films of the eighties. You know, those are what I was raised on. I mean, those are, those are the things that are deep in my soul in a lot of ways. Right. Mm hmm. But the ones that really, really scared me and grossed me out, all those things as a kid, right? But to see what came before, you know, and and I think my abiding love of the Universal Monsters and the Hammer horror films, you know, have really is 
was one of the reasons why I wanted to do that too. Mm-hmm. But what's funny, I guess, is I was in fourth grade. I distinctly remember this. We were one of the assignments we were given was write a letter to your okay. Imagine that you're a famous person writing a letter to your mother. Okay. I think I did that too. Yeah. 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 You know, it's sort of a simple writing prompt assignment, right? Yeah. Get tone. I, I chose Boris Karloff. Yo, that's a, cool. As a fourth grader, I was so enamored. And Boris Karloff is still my favorite actor. I I see why. The <laughs> grace, the gruff, the yeah. demeanor. It's so, he's magical. Yeah, yeah. And the more I see of him, the more impressed I am. Um, you know, as a kid, I, when I was in fourth grade, I had really only seen a couple of his films. I, I, I only had limited knowledge, you know, Frankenstein, Bride, The Mummy, you know. <laughs> but like, you know, I think back on that, it's like, what? I, I was so immersed in those books. I would check them out every week and I would read them every week uh, from my school library. It was until the librarian said you had to pick something else. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> um, and some of those books I've actually gone and I've tracked down, you know, so I Ooh. to buy for my personal library because I just wow. adore them so much, you know. Uh-huh. Getting library books, that is, you know, today I bought a whole bunch of VHS stuff from a thrift shop for like charity for children. Uh-huh. And it's magical to get them, but there's nothing quite as magical as getting that book that was yes. like from the 60s in your mm-hmm. old school's library. Oh, yeah. That had to be great. Yeah. I mean, and I still sort of seek them out on eBay or uh, some of the titles I've lost, you know, exactly what they are. So it's become a little mm-hmm. hard to find some of them, but I remember the covers so distinctly. Um, and there's one I recently tracked down on eBay. I was like, score. I had just had the title slightly wrong, um, but right. it was, it was <laughs> just like this beautiful thing. But um, yeah, I'm just, uh, so it's, it doesn't really matter to me the decade or the era. Um, I've just found myself loving it um, and finding, you know, it speaks to me in different ways and I think speaks to the human condition uh, in so many ways. You know, I, I just finished an article on Nosferatu. That that movie is a hundred years old this year. Mm-hmm. And there is so much going on in that movie that is still so 100% relevant to now. Uh, it, it's yeah. incredible. I mean, it's just because of the matter of the human condition, you know. Absolutely. And obviously, just circumstances, I will say, you know, it's amazing how here we are 100 years later. And I would say like, medically and stuff, we're in yeah. a very similar situation that they Absolutely. were in. Maybe there are more endemics going on in localized areas, but, you know, seeing all of that in Nosferatu, how they're really going off about plague yeah. and, and, you know, the allegorical nature of it, yeah, that's you, the stuff that's like, yeah. You can't miss the plague stuff. I mean, it, no. that, I mean, it just <laughs> screams off the film. It um, really does. And obviously that was still so fresh in 1922, um, so... Yeah, it's it's so that's one of the things that's fascinating to me. And then also, you know, I, I love digging into movies. I love looking at what is going on culturally in them. So I think 
certain international films. I, I really love digging into those and just finding out, you know, what culturally and historically lends itself to the making of it. Um, that kind of thing. I've, I, I just am really into history and literature and all these kinds of things. So digging deeper into film. Um, and I think horror is, is a really rich a, a rich vein, you know, of gold, if you want to mine for it, if you want to mm-hmm. really dig at that metaphor too. But <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, uh, there's just so much there. Uh, and I think it speaks so uh, directly to the human condition, like we were saying. I think science fiction and horror in particular are the ways that you can talk about things that no one else, that everyone else is afraid to talk about. Mm-hmm. I see what you're doing there, too. It's a really good step towards a segue to our film today. It just might Uh, be. It just might be. (laughs) Uh, Before we do it, before we do it, I do have a quick question about... um, So since you're doing a piece on monsters, and we have a very monstrous-laden film that we're going to be discussing today, um, would you say then that you are more of the creature-feature, monster-driven horror fan? Or is there a particular subgenre that you really dig your claws into the most? I don't know. I um, I don't know if it's creature features. I don't, I don't know if it's... Um, I really love ghost movies, mm-hmm. like haunted house movies. Um, you know, I, you know, the innocence, the haunting, um, the shining, you know, I mean, wh- mm-hmm. whatever, th- those kinds of things. I really, I really like also, um, maybe just because of my background, I really dig religious horror religious you know? horror yeah yeah so i mean the exorcist <laughs> cool. was a formative movie to me oh i can imagine yeah. i can imagine yeah i was just curious about that because i'm not i mean not to make it sound like people have to be champions of one specific thing at all oh, no. um but it, i have noticed a little bit of that through line for you and uh it, it's very interesting i mean they all share similarities to each other as well sure. and like you're saying how they speak to the human condition i think that's where they differ the most is just what aspect of being do they attack, essentially, if you're a horror movie? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And I think, um, you know, just from what you're saying, I just made me think of what, refine my answer a little bit too here. So I think my response is that I really, when it comes, I don't know if it's creature features exactly, because when I I think Mm -hmm. of creature features, I think, you know, Godzilla and King Kong, which I love, you know, know, like Tremors or, you know, big monsters. Um, I I really latch on to the human or humanoid kind of creature monster. Um, So things like they, I mean, it was kind of out of necessity because you had to put an actor into that part, right? Um, yeah. You know, you couldn't <laughs> do other things. But, I mean, the universal cycle, um, those, especially Frankenstein, I think a, a character that, or and Hammer did it too, of course. But, mm-hmm. like, I think the ones that drew me the most were the ones that were kind of sympathetic, you know, ones that... Yeah ones that you could really feel for like the Frankenstein monster is such a tragic figure, especially when played by Karloff, you know? Um, and then of course, um, the Wolfman and the Phantom of the Opera, those, Mm -hmm. those characters in particular, I think the tragedy that's connected with them has always really drawn me. And maybe that's one of the things that really draws me to this film too, because that is so there. Oh Uh, yeah. This, human 
monster um, who really does have goodness there. I mean, Dracula, I've, I've always been entertained by Dracula, but I'm not as compelled by Dracula because Dracula is just kind of pure evil, you know? Oh, yeah. He's you just know. there to mess you up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, there are, are, of course, uh, sympathetic vampire movies. Um, but, you know, when I think of the, like, Bela Lugosi's Dracula is not particularly, um, like, oh, I feel so bad for him, you know? <laughs> uh, or Christopher Lee's even less, probably. But, I mean, that's just not the nature of the role, you know? Right. Whereas uh, some of these other, you know, the I bring up this a lot, I guess, just because it. I think it probably relates to the film we're talking about in a big way, mm-hmm. is Frankenstein's monster because you know there really is this uh, sense that he only becomes a monster because other people make him one. Exactly so. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I, I find that um, so very compelling, and um, I've always uh, attached myself and latched on to. And I guess um, seen myself to some extent in, mm, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of character. So That's a beautiful take. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I, I can totally relate to this as well. I think a lot of horror fans can. I think that's mm-hmm. where we do have that othered kind of feeling that we share. Sure. Uh, at least how horror films through their antagonists, for lack of a better word, tend to showcase and also through some of your protagonists too if you have mm-hmm. like in the film we're about to discuss uh you do have protagonists who can just be horrid people yeah. uh, you know they show sides that you try to not give attention to because other people will monsterize you and um yeah there's a bit of the beauty of the horror before we get into the gloopy rancidness about yeah. what we're about to discuss so brian what film are we discussing today? Well, we're talking about uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly from 1986. Um, yeah, so I already did mention this one briefly, obviously. So, but, uh, <laughs> yes, it had to come up. Get into a little bit more of, of why it fascinated me from s- such an early point. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very curious to hear how this movie kind of like lives in your thoughts and your feelings. And of course how some of those scenes have affected you over time as well. Uh, Before we jump into that, I do like to just read out a brief synopsis for anybody who may or not have seen the films. And in this case, I I use that tone because I'm like, it's the fly from 1986. Um, (laughs) If you haven't, there's no judgment there. I'm just more like, oh, I'm so excited for you. Uh, So please go check that one out before we get into the nitty gritty of it. Because this movie has enough of those types of scenes where you're like, what the hell? You don't want those things spoiled for you. Uh, Even some of the actors were kind of shocked by what they had to do. Um, But here's what IMDb says is the synopsis of the film. Let's see if it holds any any weight to the actual film. They say, A brilliant but eccentric scientist begins to transform into a giant man-fly hybrid after one of his experiments goes horribly wrong. Simple, sweet, no spoilers. Yep, yep. Very simplified. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. that that could be in the back of the case, probably. It probably was, you know. (laughs) Probably, yeah. So, yeah, there's a little bit more to it than that. Like I said, if you haven't seen it, please go check it out. But we're going to continue on with this. So I have to ask. So I I know I came to you and uh, Beauty was already done. So I was like, okay, you have a few categories to choose from. And you picked up Disgust. 
and you picked up The Fly. I remember we were both really excited about that. Um, was it? Did this pop into your head because of how quintessential it is, or was there just something about, like, I need to talk about The Fly? Oh, it was a little of both, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, when you when I saw the word disgust, I was like, this is the one that immediately jumped into my mind, <laughs> the very first thing. Um, like I said, I also mentioned Frankenstein because, you know, people were are repelled by him mm-hmm. but i think this movie and, and especially as i was watching it again this morning i realized how uh it's sort of it's almost a meditation on the various forms of disgust yeah you know it just goes from one type to the next it seems like and just examines it from every angle it possibly can and uh so i found that fascinating uh, on this rewatch. And I've been wanting to rewatch it for a while um, for s- some personal reasons and also just because I like the movie a lot. <laughs> you know, I think I liked it more this time than I ever have. And I've always loved mm-hmm. this movie. Uh, I just saw more in it, I think, than I ever have. Yeah. I, and maybe it's also just the prep knowing that you, you were going to be discussing it on this level. But I had the same feeling. Like last time I saw it, I also felt compelled a lot by the like the romantic relationship involved and this time i guess because i decided to look at it through the lens of disgust i was like the freaking story that's being told in this movie is so sad it's so depressing and it's kind of beautiful in that weird way right the kind of melancholic kind of sadness to it 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 really is and i've never i don't think i've ever felt this movie like i did today Mm. um i i've always i think uh, the last time i watched it was uh, i good i don't know 10 years ago really yeah which is shocking to me maybe less but it was a long time ago it seems like time flies a lot faster now uh, the older i get it seems but yeah i was just really uh moved by it in a way that i hadn't Mm -hmm. been uh, ever before because always before it's like oh look at you know the melting hand and the, the melting hand yeah, yeah and, <laughs> here we go know, here we go <laughs> he's gonna break his arm and he's gonna you know walk <laughs> on the ceiling and he's gonna you know <laughs> keep his museum full of his body parts that have the brundle him. museum is so wonderful yeah <laughs> i mean it's just <laughs> like whoa um so you, you know you think I, I think there's a lot of fireworks in this movie um mm-hmm. which Cronenberg does, you know, <laughs> uh, he he does it very well too. You know, he finds people, you know, in this case Chris Wallace, you know, to do incredible makeup effects, um, and all of that. But there's always at its core this very human story going mm-hmm. on, and I think that's what sort of imitators of Cronenberg miss. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's just stunning to how, how, uh, because, you know, to really watch this and think with thinking that word disgust, you know, and how it is portrayed in this film. I just kept seeing it over and over and hearing it, hearing the actual word over and over again as well. And I thought that was really fascinating, um, to sort of look at it in that lens. When you mentioned it to me, I, I obviously I had 
hadn't known it like the back of my hand, so I didn't know how much the movie was going to fine-tooth comb the concept of disgust and our responses as a society to it. Right. But I guess somewhere in the back of my head, just knowing how the movie makes me feel, I was just like, yes, 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 yes. Not just because he vomits a lot, right? but, um, you know, of course there is the very wonderful moment where he's talking to Gina Davis and he's trying to eat the sandwich or it was like a it's donut or something. Like a donut and he just, and he just, Oh, that's disgusting when he vomits. Yeah. All over. <laughs> but it was, it was also just because of what you're saying. I think it's this thing that is felt with the film, even mm-hmm. when you're not thinking in those terms, but when you're actively going, focus on the disgust, focus on the disgust. It's amazing how palatable it is because the disgust has a purpose to it. And then when you yes. feel that you suddenly see Frankenstein's monster more so than I think I've ever seen the allegory there before. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, um, one of the things that struck me this time that always bothered me before was why does Ronnie uh, played by Gina Davis just kind of let Brundle fly, just take her out of the clinic, you know, right. he, she, she, she doesn't put up much of a fight, but she still has that deep attachment to him, you know, mm-hmm. and you see that, you know, at the very end, you know, when she is like, I'm not going to shoot you. I'm not going to kill you. Even though he's completely transformed into this other thing that is horrifying, you know, looking, you know, um, and could kill her so easily. Yeah. But she knows Seth, which uh, yeah. in this case, Jeff Goldblum, yeah. who is just magnetic throughout the entire film. I think that what they did so well was getting his mannerisms into the doll that yes. they use for the fly itself. I, I was reading up on I like to go through like the IMDb trivia sometimes mm-hmm. just to see if there's little you know tidbits. Uh, and it's amazing what we're talking about with disgust. And how you feel like oh, it's is really deeply analyzing it. It is like apparently Cronenberg's whole thing about this was to show people's responses to disease and aging, yeah. just things that people can't help that happen to them physically. And I, th- what makes it so tragic and so wonderful is Veronica's the look in her eyes when she's looking at this creature because it moves like Jeff Goldblum. Mm-hmm. exactly like him that you can still sense him in this creature that good part of him so when right. he grabs the shotgun she's like it's him she could just sense that like he would do this yeah he would know when he went too far yeah i it's it's so striking and then you know at the very beginning of the movie um after the sort of opening credits that sort of cool i, I i've always been fascinated by that sort of it sort of looks like it's infrared or computer or mm-hmm. something, you know, going on. And, and it's then a predator. It's, yeah. Yeah. There, <laughs> there you go. That's, that's a good, that's a good analogy there. But um, then the, the first two shots are just these close-ups of them and they're both so attractive. Oh, yeah. I don't know if either of them have ever looked so good and they both always look good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I was just like, wow, they, they are just, beautiful people and i think because of that casting and and the chemistry between between them is absolutely electric mm-hmm. you know um 
I mean, obviously they were <laughs> in a relationship. Uh, I, they were, yeah. Yeah, I think it, during this film. Yeah, Goldblum, it's reported that Goldblum was the reason that Gina Davis got the role. Okay. Uh, not because he wanted to have his girlfriend in a movie, but he was just looking at the script and he's like, hey, David, uh, I think Gina's pretty good for this. You know, yeah. she's got that vibe. And he's like, I don't want to have a couple. <laughs> and right. uh, then he saw her do the screen test and they moved on and, and he's just like, well, damn it, nobody's as good as Gina. Yeah. <laughs> so he had to do it. Yeah, and it, it, the chemistry that is there on the screen between them uh, is, I mean, it makes so much of this insane story, you know, believable. Mm-hmm. You oh, know? yeah. And relatable. And I think that is part of the magic is the casting of this. Uh, and they... And like I said, you know, to have someone because, you know, Jeff Goldblum with his hair long and you know, <gasps> just sort of perfectly tanned and all of the things that he had perfectly fit and all of the things that he is in this movie. Right. Um, to see that decay, to see that fall apart, um, you know, it, it, it's so much more effective when it comes from that starting point, you know, and it's just. Yeah, it's it's really powerful. <laughs> I don't know what else to add to it, but, but it's that. very subtle as well. The development yeah. of it throughout the film, I like uh-huh. how it's like like you're saying when you take people who are pretty much spotless like this mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film, and you're really only left with analyzing their interior, basically. Yeah. So who are they as people? We instantly can see that Veronica is more of a cutthroat kind of journalist, very independent, ready to play hardball. And you can see that Seth really has no human contact of any kind. And he's right. a huge nerd. And he does, he's trying to pick up ladies with, would you like to see my science experiment? Right. Uh, you know, and they're both just so hot and just wonderfully gorgeous. And it's pristine so that the moment he has this experiment, mm-hmm. you just see those little dots in his face. Yeah. And you're like, he looks weird. Huh. What, did, he, did he always have freckles? You know, that's kind of how it goes. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that's that's fun. I, this is the first time I've watched it on uh, the Scream Factory Blu-ray, which is really, oh, nice, really, really nice transfer. Uh, and because I grew up with this movie on VHS, you know, mm-hmm, and you too, can yeah. see the changes as they occur, but I mean, it's just not as clear, you know. <laughs> of course, um, not, yeah. <laughs> So seeing this movie the way that I watched it this morning, it was just like, oh, wow. I mean, I it <laughs> never had that kind of impact, just his transformation uh, and how subtle and slow it is. Um, but the thing is, this movie is, I, I don't mean slow in a, <laughs> in a slow burn kind of way. This movie clips, mm-hmm. it just cooks. Uh, it's only 96 minutes, and it seems like it has so much in it, you know? It really does. Yeah. This is a movie nowadays, if you had the script, they'd find a way to pad it to be two and a half hours long. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I feel they achieved the same thing that you would achieve in, say, like, Lee Wannell's The Invisible Man. Sure. In 96 minutes. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think um, just the the restraint that Cronenberg shows by cutting this down to mm-hmm. that length and ending it where he does, you know, for example, uh, that's just, uh, that's 
that's a sign of a really, really gifted filmmaker and one that's not too precious about his own work. It's just saying, what mm-hmm. does this narrative, what does this film need? And doing that. Yeah. I know that the studios did make them film those prologue, or not prologue, epilogue scenes about, you know, how was the birth? Which, you know, did she go and continue on with her ex-boyfriend and all that? And I was really happy to hear that Cronenberg was just like, well, the protagonist is dead. Yeah. So you just end the movie. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so much more effective to just, the movie just ends with the climax. Yeah. I mean, and that is so rare in a movie for it to end at the climactic moment. In the feeling of disgust as well, we've just Mm -hmm. gone through the gamut at this point in this film. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's like the last 15 minutes of just flesh sliding off of flesh, eyeballs caving in this weird looking creature that just is just horrid. It's not a fly. It's something else. And you see the metal fused with it. Just all these gnarly looking things. Hearing Gina Davis, who's been really calm throughout the whole film, suddenly shrieking her head off. Yeah. And then they're just like, you're not going to get any moment in this movie to lose that feeling. That's your last emotion. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, there's no moment of, oh, I'm going to go over and, uh, you know, comfort my ex over here who was in pain or whatever. You know, none of that. I mean, it's just done. And you have to feel it. You have to feel it deeply. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that is a bold choice and really powerful. And and very not mainstream. That's where you can see oh. Cronenberg's influence here. And it's amazing that this movie is, you know, it's like his Oscar biggest bait. Hit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, what? I, I get it because of who's in it. Uh-huh. Even though I guess at the time, Jeff Goldblum isn't, you know, he's not a draw then the way he is now. Nah. But this was one of the movies that made him that draw. Exactly. Yeah. But still, it's just like, this movie was so mainstream and oh gosh, broke I remember all the of the lines. Rules. I remember people, <laughs> I remember uh, Bob Hope making jokes about this on TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this shows my age a little bit, you know. Uh, <laughs> hey, but, I watched the Bob Hope stuff too. You're in good company. Okay, fair enough. Good. <laughs> um, but it was just like, it's these crazy things like this movie was everywhere. It was a phenomenon. So I, I was just like, I don't know what this is, but everyone was talking about it. And I remember that uh, still, (laughs) you know, all of what is it? 35 years later. So, oh goodness. Yeah. It it shows the talent on display in every facet. It shows the impact of the narrative. I do feel maybe at the time, I'm curious to know if we could ever accumulate this knowledge, like how many people in 1986 felt what you felt this morning when you were watching the film yeah i don't know i think there probably would have been a certain amount of oh my gosh look at all this gross stuff you know (laughs) yeah Uh, i i because i think this is sort of the part of that trifecta of great remakes you know um i think there's really a fourth and a fifth but you know the the trifecta that is most often called upon is the thing uh this movie and then the blob you know those those yeah. three um are sort of those are the great you know 80s remakes i i personally would include include um invasion of the body snatchers from 78 absolutely and yes and uh herzog's nosferatu oh that's as, a good shout 
yeah, as as sort of like this grouping of these truly great uh, remakes that came out, you know, in that decade uh, mm-hmm. from, you know, 1978 to 88 there. Uh, but I think... But those three that I that I mentioned first are also so well known for their practical effects. Yeah, you know that is sort of that was such a a big deal. And this is you know sort of you know eighty eight was sort of the blink of the eye. I mean eighty six, eighty eight. You know uh, when the Blob came out, or sort of that moment before CGI. You know, mm-hmm. and this is the pinnacle of the practical effects era you know, are, are, are those films. And I think they mostly still hold up pretty darn good. You know, there's a lot of, they even, really do, you know, not just the makeup effects, but also just like the visual effects, you know, where they're using, like when um, the, tr- the teleportation, the look of the teleportation really holds up. I mean, and that's, it would have, yeah. it would have been animated. It wouldn't have been um, computer generated. And so I, I, it's pretty surprising how well a lot of it works still. Yeah, the only thing that some of it requires, I guess, is, you know, a big leap of faith or a suspension of disbelief when you're talking about, like, the computer screen showing all this detailed imagery of what happened inside oh, sure, of the pod. Sure, sure. But, of course. But no, but I'm saying that's the only, but if that's your only thing and it looks so good that I can believe that, because especially now in 2022, that's what makes the movie still work. It's like, yeah, yeah. a computer could do that now. So mm-hmm. it's only if I think about 1986 that I go, huh? But outside of that, I don't feel that there's a lot in the movie that dates it. So they right. don't jump out of reality too harsh. It's really just because it's so focused on that general concept mm-hmm. and the humanity that's at play. I think because they focus so heavily on that, it's mainly Jeff Goldblum's hair. I suppose that might date the movie the most. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, you know, Gina Davis's shoulder pads, you know, Oh, but I think she still rocks a shoulder pad. She, she does. She <laughs> yeah, does. there you yeah. go. She, she can do that. <laughs> but yeah, those those are really the only kinds of things. There are a few fashion things. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and those are so. I mean, those are so easily forgivable. I think in a, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you when you realize you're watching a movie from the '80s. So when I think of disgust, mm-hmm. you know, we're often going to be thinking about. The the nastiness, the, sure. the the vile, which is in this movie for sure. It's Cronenberg. You can't have a Cronenberg without you looking at your skin and going, "Ugh, it's just, it's just an organ on cover of my other organs." Thanks, right. David. Uh, but one thing that really struck me with this and with all of them, because come back to a thing that you said earlier, is that what people fail to really capture from Cronenberg, and that's because I think most people when they watch a Cronenberg film do get caught up in just the sheer overwhelming visuals that you usually get to experience is also the disgust of humanity that's within this meat sack that he's talking about. And so I loved how these characters were all immensely flawed Mm -hmm. and did not necessarily... Okay, you're talking about the beauty of the two protagonists. Uh, physically, right? Right, yeah. But, like, inside, there's a bit of a questionable edge there. And then you have... Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, God, what was his name again? Um, I, I know. His, his name always slips in my mind, too. God, I gotta is, admit. Why would you write this name? Um, what, what did he call it? Stathis Boren. Stathis. 
That's it. Thank you. I gotta admit, John Getz plays him pretty darn good, though. Almost too well, right? Yeah. (laughs) You gotta wonder about it. (laughs) Uh, He did say that he took this one because he was put into roles with guy about you know to play guys like this all the time. He must have just had the most punchable face and voice ever. And he took this one because this guy ends up doing something heroic at the end of the film. So he's like, at least he actually shows that when he says he cares about Veronica, he he means it. He just has all this really toxically masculine way of showing it. Yeah, he he certainly does. And it's (laughs) his, his earlier scene. (laughs) I mean, I, I always laugh when (laughs) she flushes the toilet while he's in the shower and all that. I I always have a, fun with that stuff he's just kind of one of those characters that you love to hate but ultimately you know he is more or less the hero of the movie <laughs> you know um sadly in a, in a weird way <laughs> you know he he um he makes the arrangements uh for ronnie to go to the clinic um to uh get him get her away from from seth and all kinds of things i mean there's and, you know, he, he is going to, you know, per, try to protect her further by, you know, killing him, you know. Um, but he kind of... He fails miserably. He but fails, yeah. yeah. Um, but <laughs> when you're up against a man who can vomit a digestive enzyme, um, yeah. you've got your issues, you know. It's true. But You're at yeah, a disadvantage. Yeah, I think you make a good point there that just the disgust of just kind of who all of these characters are internally, at least to some extent, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think <laughs> it's sort of a joke that comes up on my podcast every now and then is I, I, I kind of say, you know, here's the thing. Everybody sucks, at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um you know, everyone, there is no such thing as a, as a perfect human being. We just try and do our best and will, even the best of us are going to have some flaws, you know? And I think that to have a character that doesn't have a flaw is boring. Yeah. And this is not that (laughs) at all. No, oh no, no. They all have what he does so well with Cronenberg you know he took a script that already existed and then mm-hmm. put his Cronenberg kind of flair to it yeah and what he does so well with his characters is how he tries to look at like where could the flaw be yeah and how do I not dehumanize you entirely unless I need to right it's weird with Stathis they kind of do a reversal with him how he's just vile right. from the moment we meet him kind of till the end yeah, um, but much. I guess it's because like the only reason I think the main reason he gets that story like the hero arc, I, I don't know. There, there are probably multiple things at play. I'm sure studio involvement plays into this as well. We got to have the strong man kind of you know save Gina Davis. But but he doesn't um, though. That that's what I. Well, find. he gets her out of the pod. At the very that's least. true. You you have a point there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, she could have not been the damsel in distress in the pod and let me out. But yeah. um, fine. Finds the 80s if this is the lightest touch that they put into this movie for this abject piece of garbage (laughs) to (laughs) redeem himself uh, at the very least he does become physically handicapped at the end of the film in a way that does shift a bit of sympathy in his direction and it's kind of interesting that they do that because normally 
that's not how a story goes. That's not how filmmakers are going to go. They're going to try to other the person who has some sort of a deformity or a handicap or something, sure. which is kind of the point he was making here and how immediately Stathis is just humanized. However, like, you poor guy. Yeah. You don't have a hand. You don't have a foot. And you're just trying to survive. And I'm like, yeah, you're still, I, I hope your ideologies have changed afterwards and you've gotten a little bit of humility. But um, it's just interesting to see how they did decide to kind of heroize him the moment he loses his full functionality, if you will, or at least, you know, his able-bodiedness. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and, you know, they they do that also to with Seth when uh, he's, it's sort of, you know, the the middle version of him, you know. Okay. Because uh, when she goes and visits him, and he is, right. He has the he has two canes. The canes. His, his, yeah. His feet. He's he can't seem to to use his feet the way he used to. Um. So it's it's sort of that step after you know his sort of superhuman strength. <laughs> you know his showing that off that sort of superhuman strength he's developed. You know, um. It's just this, and it's it's the most sympathetic scene of him as brundlefly because so much of his humanity is still there he just has um you know these these disabilities and he's trying to figure out what on earth is happening to him um you know now that you mentioned it it's almost i've noticed with the transformations now just based on what you're saying it's making me remember this that He's almost most human when he is the most physically incapable. Yes. Because mm -hmm. the moment he gets that back is when he's gone full fly. Exactly. When he can climb up the walls and all that. Oh, no, I mean full, full. Like oh, the full, full transformation. Like yeah, he's still kind of caught a little bit into the, the monstrosity or are we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. But like the moment he is fused and everything, you do have the softness to him where he's just kind of like, what am I doing? True. And yeah. I, I just find that so fascinating that they keep showing how with Brundle, like the difference between, and I, I cause they're showing the difference, you know, the, the, the amalgamation of fly and human. Right. And I love how it's kind of starts the most with like fly brain taking over human brain. Right. And then just get little glimpses of the human brain kind of popping in from yeah. time to time, which I don't know what he's trying to say with that. Like that could be a whole conversation in and of itself. Oh, man, there's <laughs> there there's so <laughs> many levels that of this movie that I'm I'm sure that every time I watch it, I can't imagine not just thinking about it in a different way, you know, mm -hmm. and going deeper with it because there's and you know there's a lot more to this than. I probably ever realized because, you know, as a kid, uh, my, my experiences with this was I heard a lot of the things that happened in it. You know, I, mm -hmm. I heard, Oh, he, uh, he pukes on the guy's hand and it melts and, you know, those kinds of things. <laughs> my, my friends were much more hardcore than I was at the time. Right. Yeah. And so, <laughs> right. Uh, so I heard all those stories and I kind of went into what, and I sort of asked my mom and dad, can I, can I watch it? And there's like, if you want to, you know, go ahead. The oh, tape's there. That you always know. scared me as a kid. My mom's like, if you want to, I'm like, what do you know? Yeah. Cause my mom had seen it. My mom hated it. She was just, she was horrified by it. 
And my dad loved it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just kind of one of those things. But I think my dad was so fascinated with it because he had seen the original, you know, when he was young. Mm. And uh, so he was probably, you know, nine years old, saw it in the movie theater for all I know. Um, Or he may have seen it on television, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, back in the 60s. But so he was really excited about this new one, (laughs) you know. Uh, and that it was so different from that that original, um, I think he loved that too, and and so that's why he he's always this is one that he and I can talk about and and enjoy talking about together. So it's fun because he, he doesn't watch a lot of horror, but um, when he does, it's sort of like, oh yeah, this was cool. <laughs> so, um, so, but I I went in knowing some of those things, so I would put it in and I would watch it. And the first time for me, I, it was it was like, and watching this now, I realized it was these moments of disgust, you know, sort of mm. physical disgust that sort of made me stop the movie. Because the first time I tried watching it, I got to the part where the baboon turns inside out. Oh, and, yeah. And I was like, I can't go anymore. So sad. I'm done. I'm done. I can't do anymore. Uh, and then it went to the part where he breaks the guy's arm. Uh, I still can't look at that every time it happens I just look away knowing it's coming like I don't want to see that I know I know uh and then you know it would it would get just a little I think I maybe got to the maggot scene uh and was just like oh I'm out (laughs) you know and then finally watched the whole movie but it was just one of those things where it was it took me a long time to really get up the courage when I was younger to even watch this movie all the way through because of those elements of disgust that just sort of hit me so hard every time, you know? Um, but noticing it this time, I, I mean, I'm used to all those. I look sort of beyond those moments of sort of obvious disgust, I guess. Right. T- towards some of the things that are happening uh, earlier on, like um, her reaction to the stake that has gone through the teleporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like ooh, it's synthetic it's gross I, I i can't describe it it's it's horrible you know um you know that sort of thing and then when he's like dumping all of the sugar into his coffee oh so gross yeah yeah she's she's just <laughs> appalled by this i mean she's really really grossed out but she's also even more she's kind of she's really turned off by this narcissism that mm-hmm. he's expressing in that cafe scene you know, it's all very yeah. about him. I mean, then then in the scene after that, you know, they're apparently have had been having sex for hours and she's just like appalled by it. She's just sick of it by that point. Yeah. Um, I found that all just really, really interesting. And that and in that scene, you know, that's when she finds the hairs growing out of his back. And it's not just his skin and everything is starting to look really horrible and everything and um but his attitude i think just becomes disgusting to her you know he starts oh, for yelling sure. at her you know you're jealous and all of these things yeah um, i also think that it's one of those gina davis is so good at filling in the blanks uh, in a lot of those scenes yeah because some of it's really subtle some of it you could just, maybe you're empathetic enough that you're not disgusted by him. Maybe you're like, well, I mean, we know a fly was in there. So you're just, you you might be nervous, you might be scared, kind of going like, oh, he's doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But we feel that extra disgust because you see her face, you're like, I wouldn't like this either. 
you put yourself in her shoes and you're like, that is messed up. Yeah. I don't want to be around that. And it's so powerful. Her expressions, apparently the scene where his ear falls off yeah. and she has to go hold him. She, <laughs> I've, I've seen multiple takes of like trivia where they're saying that that was the only scene where Gina Davis was proper, like properly disgusted by this movie. Yeah. And the, that take that they have in the film of her looking like, what am I doing? was real. That was actually her kind of breaking character and being like, what am I doing with my life? And uh, Cronenberg was just so happy with seeing how she's like, I don't want to touch him. He's glooping onto the side of my face. And she just hated it so much that he's like, that's the take. That's the one. Because there's a real response to it. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. It's so good. It's so great, too. Yeah, I mean... Just then, you know, when she comes to after, you know, he's sort of picked up the woman in the bar mm-hmm. and the famous be afraid, be very afraid line. So good. Yeah. And like I was saying, like, you know, even if we didn't pick up on this carnal yeah. aspect, it's in the text. But you know how movies go. If you're yeah. just listening, it kind of washes over you sometimes because I think I've seen it like three, four times. And this is the first time I really picked up on like that animalism yes. that's in there. And like you said, like there, you know, that sex scene, which is interesting, by the way, it's the only sex scene. Uh huh. They, it's post coitus the first time we see it. Uh, and this time it's just the fact that it used to be about them loving each other and about her attraction to him. And this time he's just like, just having sex. He's just, yeah. Just procreating basically is what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, and also the language. Let's get into language just a little bit. Sure. Cause Cronenberg is phenomenal with using written and verbal language to do this, you know, to generate disgust. And a lot of how Seth and Veronica speak in this film, I think is where if you're not paying attention to Gina Davis's expressions, you're hearing what they're saying. And isn't there something about the word flesh that just makes your skin crawl? (laughs) That's a, Oh, very well, very well said. Well, and the thing is Cronenberg is obviously well known for, you know, flesh, the new flesh, flesh you know, in yes. Videodrome and, and those kinds of things that crop up a lot in his work, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, the television in that movie too, made out of skin, <sighs> you know, and then, and then, you know, later Pulsing in, Ex- later in Existence, you know, the video game console, it's like a skin, it's like a controller that looks, that moves like skin, you know, uh, it's also, <laughs> it's got all that. So that whole idea of flesh and corrupted flesh is very much mm-hmm. a Cronenbergian thing. You know? But like that sex scene, for instance, one mm-hmm. thing that, so what made that so disgusting for me? Cause at first you're just like, Oh, a sex scene. Okay. But you're like, mm, this one feels, as it enters, the, the camera enters the shot, you're like, it feels a little different than the last time we saw this. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, but they're in the middle of it. It's got to be hot and steamy, right? And you're just like, no, there's no there's no energy left. His skin's getting really potted and yeah. picked and just, like, it looks like he has burns almost. It does. It does. Yeah. And she looks so bored. And yes. then she says... How can you have any fluids left? And I'm like, what (laughs) night did you have? Fluids. God, woman. She's trying to turn him off so badly. (laughs) Trying to turn him off as bad as she is by that point. Exactly. It's like this. It's it's just become a physical act. There's no, Mm -hmm. there's nothing else going on. 
isn't it interesting how that disgusts us though it's stuff that is just normal mm -hmm. but when it's biological it's horrible right i think right. it's because us that's the human condition sure. we are in our brains built to have purpose in just about everything mm -hmm. so that when we're just like well you ever heard the term skin hungry sure yeah i you know yeah yeah it sounds aggressive yeah it does but it's really just like i just want to hug right you know and it's so interesting how like that is gr it's just so gross when you say it out loud and you're like oh don't say that yeah don't say that. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it's what it makes me think of for sure and it's supposed yeah. like and i've heard people say that as if like it's an innocent thing I'm like i'm just a little skin hungry i'm like oh i don't want to participate in that yeah <laughs> Yeah, I guess the circles that I travel in don't use that phrase, so I'm grateful for that. <laughs> uh, I know a lot of artists. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I I feel like I know a lot of musicians, uh, so maybe, maybe, maybe make a great band name. There, yeah, it, it would be. It would be. <laughs> Oi, I'll have to mention that sometime too. Oh, skin hungry. Yeah, okay. Anyway, moving <laughs> and on. And they also use words like plasma as well instead yeah. of blood. You know, they're, they're trying, Cronenberg really tries to, and this is something he's gotten from Clive Barker as well, mm -hmm. is when you try to make the scientific intimate, it's just disgusting. Yeah. Uh-huh. It really is. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you're, you're, you're kinda, you kind of blew my there. mind a little bit, shook me a little bit in that. Oh wow! Yeah. Well, I'm I'm happy to provide on that level. Fair um, enough. Yeah, yeah. And so the for me, it's the language in the film, and I think that's what really hit me this time. Is why I'm able to like quote it back. It just I was just constantly going like, huh? Every single time I would listen to them. I also tend to watch movies with subtitles these days, sure. and when you can see the text on the screen, you're suddenly like, oh, that's what you said. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and in a Cronenberg film, you, re you know, it's really in there. All of Seth's rants and rambles when he's starting to get like the fly brain, that oh, narcissism yeah. you're talking about, mm -hmm. all of it just goes into these diatribes that dehumanize everything that was human for the first hour of the film. Right. Yeah, it's incredible. I noticed that so much more this time than I ever had before. Just how, you know, his patterns of speech and the things that he says, the his focuses in what mm -hmm. he's talking about and when he's talking about himself, uh, he, he seems to be his own favorite subject Yeah. for, for after the transformation begins. And, uh, I never thought about how smart that was before, you know, mm -hmm. um, how, because what, what, does a fly do but think about itself there's no other it's only survival it's only about whatever it needs right there's yeah. there's no consideration for anyone or anything else you know it's survival is all it comes down to with an insect right and so his hmm. discussion about insect politics i think is really interesting yeah. and i actually found that scene very powerful too because he said love that scene. she's kind of like you know what, what does that mean and he says it means if you stay i'll hurt you that's the human coming in there yeah, yeah. that logic coming in like he's starting to realize as he's talking like yeah. i have no morality left that's right oh what a terrible thought to have yeah and i i found i found that i guess i i, I remembered that whole discussion before 
but it had never really um, affected me that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this time it really did. You know, just I think the longer you're in a relationship with someone, I've been married almost 20 years. This wow. year will be 20 years. So, congratulations. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Um, but you find that, you know, there are just times that you just hurt each other, you know? Of course. And mm. um, I think, I think that really struck me because feeling the weight of some of those times where I know I have hurt my wife, you know, it's, uh, it's painful, you know, and for, and to have the realization is very human, you know, mm-hmm. whereas to not have the realization and to not care is very animal. Yeah. And I feel that that's explored really well through both of our male characters here, our protagonists, yes. and it's also explored with status, how he shows the other side of this throughout the whole film until the end. That's the redeeming part is he shows like he is actually a human being. It's despicable as he is, even though he says a line like, I had to write this down. Do I have permission to claim your body when this is all over with to right. Veronica after she shows the video to him? <laughs> well, I mean, I love that she's just like, dude, and they kind of leaves. Well, and, and, you know, he says, well, how about uh, earlier on, he says, and this is another element of disgust, you know, is Mm -hmm. um, where where he says, well, what about sex? Just, you know, meaningless sex. And and she says, you're disgusting, as always. Absolutely. You know, I'd hate to disappoint. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's a great exchange and it sort of tells you everything you need to know about status, you know. It does humanize him, though, because of uh, an animal would not know that they could have the capacity to be perceived as something disgusting unless they had an illness. That's the thing. They have to be infectious before another animal looks at, like a dog would look at another dog and go, I'm not going to be around this dog because they can sense that they're going to get hurt. As you say, they're very Mm self-preservational. It's disgusting to us when humans do this because we have kind of stepped outside of that capacity and we do have the ability to purely empathize with others and to communally take care of each other right so i just thought so i found it so fascinating to see how in this whole process of him becoming a fly that seth doesn't really lose his humanity he just drifts into it when the fly brain's kind of taking over i just said the whole speech about the insect politics yeah and yet it's the fact that you hear it in his tone you see it in his eyes. He cares. He, he cares does. that that's a thing. He's like, I don't want that to happen. He, he doesn't want to hurt her. And that, yeah. I think, is why that scene is so powerful. Um, and even through all those prosthetics that he's got at that point, oh, it's you yeah. can see um, his eyes and, you know, the emotion that is present in Goldblum there uh, is really something and i i think that probably became probably my favorite moment in the movie uh Mm. after watching it today uh it had never struck me on that level before and it was just like wow this is cronenberg really is tapping into some interesting stuff here 
Absolutely. And the actors and, you know, everyone involved, of course, you know, I mean, it's, I, I, we tend to put it all on the, on the director, but, you know, obviously there's so much involved with making that happen. Um, and it really is so effective. It's one of those moments that, um, it's like, this is what horror can do, uh, to help us tap into our humanity that, sometimes other kinds of genres can't do you know and i that's one of the reasons why i love the genre as much as i do you know it's one of the reasons i had the podcast exactly and i'm so happy to talk to people such as yourself who really get what i'm kind of trying to feel out here sure is this the you know because we don't talk about feeling much in society in the first place but in terms of horror films most people are going to be far more interested to know what materials they use to make the gloop in, in Goldblum's mouth. And, or they're going to be more interested, maybe like the creative process. And I, I don't mean to have a tone, by the way, this is, I have just a naturally very sarcastic tone. I don't mean to sound as if <laughs> oh, I, I don't, don't care about those things. Right. I know, but I, just for anybody who's listening, you're like, why does he sound so down? I don't, I'm not down on that at all. It's just more, if there's a frustration in my voice, it's because of the frustration of you can still support those things and not push away. How did it make you feel? Right. And what was the human element here? And I get when people don't like discourse so much because sometimes discourse just gets into, hey, I think this means this. Now, I have some thoughts on that too. I think this film, in a lot of ways, takes shots at the scientific community and shows how unhuman scientists become they become a species almost they do it a lot in you know just how seth doesn't really know how to communicate at the beginning mm-hmm. how quickly he sees himself as a specimen he's just so fascinating he's like a narcissist because a fly thinks about itself but he's also a scientist going i am a specimen i am not me so how do i look at me as a specimen and then on top of that you have like the whole abortion storyline yeah where the doctors are like why do i why am i doing this in the middle of the night and they don't care at all about doing it because this woman is freaking out they care about eh, science right anyway that that you know like it's in there and we could have that talk and Mm -hmm. there's plenty of space to talk it we might even get into it a little bit but i see the disdain for that i understand that but it does suck a little bit when you try to have that conversation and people tell you to stop looking too deeply into it when i'm like but that's why we watch them right right is this thing that you can't put words on that's right. And that for me is so important. So I'm so happy to hear these analyses coming from you as well. Uh, because I really, it's a, it's a magical moment for me. I always love hearing other people like tapping into things that I really feel and see as well. So thank you for that. Oh, well, I got to admit, you know, this conversation is sort of stimulating some of that as well. You know, I mean, I, I wrote down a few kinds of things I wanted to talk about, but you know, just the, the way that we can expand and go in different directions off of, you know, our different perceptions. That's one of the beauties for me of art is that it's perceived by different people in different ways, you know? Um, and I try to make that clear, you know, in, in stuff that I write, it's like, this is my, like, I listened to your possession episode and I was like, wow, I didn't get that at all. <laughs> you know, oh, really, <laughs> you know, whereas I, I had this different, my thought was this or that, you know, and I just love that about it though. You know, 
when you have a, I mean, possession is a particular kind of movie where, I mean, you can oh, watch yeah. that thing differently every single time you watch it and not be wrong anytime you watch it. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, I kind of, I think, I think there's so much, there's so many layers uh, going on. And I think when you talk about, I mean, Zawalski is a different kind of example, but when you talk about Cronenberg, when you talk about, uh, I think Wes Craven, personally, I'm, I'm, I do a lot of research on Wes Craven, mm-hmm. um, and I've written a lot about Wes Craven um, for lots of different reasons. But I think these are filmmakers that are they use horror, and George Romero is another good example. Yes. They use, oh, yes. They use horror to tell a story about some condition of humanity and society. You know, um, they all have something else going on. The Nightmare on Elm Street is, yes, it's about a dream killer, but it's about so much more than that. You know, uh, I think some of the more obvious ones in the case of Craven would be like the people under the stairs. I mean, that movie's about gentrification. Oh, yeah. It's about, uh, you know, all these kinds of things, you know, displacing people from their homes, that kind of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a very about very real in the world stuff. You know, Shocker is about the media and how the media distorts things. Um, and And as much as he tried to say there was no, you know, religious subtext in their in his movies or totally was like a lot <laughs> in his movies. Yeah, plenty. Yeah, yes. because <laughs> because of his background, I think it snuck in subconsciously, but it was there because of just you know what he was raised with and that just kind of entered his bones, you know, um in in various ways and he was he worked through a lot of those things in his movies. So, I mean, not to get too far on Craven, it's just, you know, I think that is a good analogy. And he was a great admirer of Cronenberg. Cronenberg was one of his top, he was one of the directors, horror directors he always mentioned as one of his favorites. Um, so I, I think, I think both it's because, you know, there is, cause like the brood, for example, that's a movie mm-hmm. about divorce and female anger and all kinds of things, you know, um, the fly, as we're talking about, is about so much more than this dude turning into a monster. You know, there's lots and lots and lots going on um, that is being comment on, commented on um, throughout the course of the film. And I think, uh, I think that go that really draws from you know like a certain sort of brand of science fiction that was always like, okay, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is about this, but it's also about this. You know, <laughs> yeah. for example, yeah. Um, you know, those those are some of the things that I think genre can do uh, that a straight drama can't. Because I mean, I think like when you're talking about uh, divorce narratives, I think the brood and possession are far more powerful and get to the core of something much deeper than a movie like um, Kramer versus Kramer, for example. Which mm-hmm. is a fine film, and I think does what it does fine, but it just can't get to the emotionality in the same way. That's a good point. Yeah, there there are a lot of 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you're right. There are a lot of dramas that, of course, they make you feel. Yeah. But I will say one reason I don't go to that genre too much more. I used to a lot in the 90s, mainly because my parents watched it, I suppose. But sure. um, it started to feel to me like there's a specific emotion that I would feel watching these movies. Mm-hmm. And either there's just the one or maybe like a small selection, usually hope or grief. Right. It's kind of where they would come in. But they're also very general. They're meant for mainstream audiences to kind of all understand, like, hey, you may not have been in this situation, but you kind of know where they're coming from. Sure. Whereas, yeah, a movie like The Fly is so, so built for anybody who has had an illness yep. or a deformity and had somebody go, ugh. And you're like, well, I'm still a person. Yep. And the, you know, possession. Anybody who has had a divorce, we're just like, you know, it's a gross movie, but... You know, because we're weeping at all the emotions that we're seeing and feeling again. Mm-hmm. Hereditary, abusive yeah. relationships and families, domestic disputes. Yes. So, and all of those things can be put into drama, but none of them can be just punched into the face You're right. quite like horror can do. Yeah, and I think also the nice thing about horror is if you don't want to feel those things, if you don't want to look for them, you don't have to. <laughs> Hey, he burned a guy's hand off and it's freaking cool. Yeah. You know, I, I think that and I don't particularly begrudge people for not seeing, you know, the deeper meanings in these films, you know. No, um, no. Because some people are kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, I wish it was like the 80s again. You know, when movies weren't political, it's like, what? <laughs> Excuse what me? What are you talking about? <laughs> what yeah. are you talking about? They were so political. Uh, but you know, it all comes out in this, it's just, you know, telling a good story and making a point that if you want to look for it is there, but you don't have to, you know, exactly. uh, and I think that can be a powerful way to tell a story. And, you know, that's, that's a fun way to, to watch a lot of, I mean, that's a not fun way. I mean, that's just, I think John, like, like I've been just saying i I think i say this in a a lot of the stuff i write i just like this is how i see it you may not uh who cares you know (laughs) if you like what i'm Mm -hmm. saying then then that's great if you don't you'll probably put it in the comments and i won't let me know yeah you know (laughs) exactly it's yeah and it's just like it's and that's fine you know we don't all have to agree that's part of the beauty of human humans consuming art you know of various Mm -hmm. kinds you know yeah the only thing i guess i begrudge in a mentality in this level is just to actively tell somebody that they're foolish and wrong because of they they had a a lived experience that you didn't have right you know you can't tell somebody what their perception was i so yeah you can disagree absolutely yeah i i'm i'm right with you on that one that that drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah. Nuance is dead, you right? Know, it's, it's pretty much like if you is. say, I disagree, people are like, oh, you were doing that thing. I'm like, no, they're not. They just disagree with you. That is different than them just flat out saying like, oh, there's no message in it and you should stop. Right. Right. Exactly. And I, I, I don't understand that at all, that need for there to be no message in the movie um, that some people seem to feel is very strange to me. Um, so... Yeah, the best answer is like, I don't know, I don't like to pick up on that. Cool. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. 
you know you you have to engage with media in the way that you want to just because we're having this discussion and for one i'm like you wouldn't be listening to this podcast unless you wanted that kind of a discussion right uh but if you if anybody ever did and they go like about it, it it's not to say that i or anybody on my show would ever say to somebody that it's wrong to just go i i, I just want to have a movie on cool yeah. that's a kind of what they're built for it, so. it's true it's true and you know <laughs> i think the best stories are built on being good stories you know yes and and then um because i i think i think this is i'm probably taking this from stephen king um on writing he his first draft is like you just write the story and then yeah. when you revise it look for themes look for that sort of stuff and you know you can expound on those things a little bit you know look for those through lines that are there and i think that's a that's an interesting way it just makes it a richer experience i think for a reader or a viewer um, if there's more to it than just the surface uh, level version going on, you know. So. True. That could also be what people were really clamoring for. I think that might have been the biggest difference from the 80s until now. I mean, we, we do mm-hmm. often, even those of us who are like, oh, well, I've always liked the political part. You know, we do lament a little bit how there aren't a lot of risks taken in storytelling uh, these days. There are some. You do get yeah. these filmmakers are doing. I mean, you get movies like Titan. They come out, you're oh, like, there right. you go. That Let's just see what wild crap you decided to write. And then you layer on what was that actually, where did that come from inside of you? Sure. And you start telling that part of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I can't say I've seen that one yet. <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen it yet, yeah. but I've seen enough of the trailers and stuff to just, and knowing the director's work as well. She's just, sure. you know, it's, it's, the, it's the subtext part of it. That the reason it's subtext is because the text was already written. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's exactly. Right? Yeah, like, absolutely. You, you, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I just find, <laughs> I just find these kinds of discussions fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I do got to say one of the things that uh, I think is personal for me, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this movie in particular, yeah. um, that scene where he, uh, this is, Okay, so this is after Ronnie, uh, Veronica, has come in and said, you know, you're, you, you know, you're changing, you look bad, you smell bad, you know. Yeah. Then the, it's like, you know, see you, you know, you gotta, you gotta take a good hard look at yourself, you know, basically. <laughs> um, and he goes to the mirror, and he starts examining himself in the mirror, um that scene just really is, okay that is stuck in my mind uh, mm. over the past few years for a couple of reasons one of them is okay um over the course of a year i i lost purposefully you know i lost 100 pounds okay and so but that scene kept on sort of popping into my head because after a while, when you lose that much weight really that fast and it was healthy and all all that i didn't i wasn't crazy with it or something but <laughs> right, you right. know um but you just start to look so much different true know? and mm-hmm. i would go to the mirrors like i i don't recognize myself you know 
I kind of always thought I looked more like my mom. Now all of a sudden I was looking more like my dad. Mm, uh, that was interesting. That was weird, you know. Um, I I had never seen any any kinds of definition in my muscles, uh, for example. Um, it, it was all very strange. Um, so this scene, th- this sequence, you know, just kept popping into my head because he's just sort of picking at himself, you know, sort of touching his face and his, <laughs> and just going, what what is that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so there, there's an element of, of fascination as well as sort of disgust going on with him. Like you've already mentioned, uh, now, now that's a lot different than, you know, the later sequences where he doesn't really look human anymore. I mean, that when he has the museum, yeah, right. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking, no, you mean like when he's like peeling his fingernail off for the first time and he looks like, oh, and that's still, oh, I have a problem. That still makes me squirm all over the freaking place. I mean, <laughs> of all the things that he that happen in this movie, peeling off his fingernails is the one that bothers me the most, <laughs> <laughs> which is, I know it's funny, but uh, it's, it's just one of those things, but yeah. So just, I guess that sense of, you know, body dysmorphia, just like, yes, what, what is this that I have? And then, you know, honestly, during, during the pandemic, uh, obviously still happening, but um, you know, when the gyms were closed down, I and stresses of life were <laughs> were at a level higher than I had experienced in a while. Um, I put a lot of it back on, so I, there was sort of that reverse mm. version of it happening. And so right. it's all it's it's a it's a exper- so experiencing. So re- this was the first time I rewatched this movie since you know losing losing the weight, mm-hmm. and it was just kind of like. Oh man, this really hits different. Oh, I can imagine. After, ah, that's really interesting. With that experience, you know, and you know, I'm I'm like I said, you know, I'm not unhappy with it. It's not like I didn't do it on purpose. I was ill or something like that, you know. Uh it was it was something I decided to do for myself, right? Um Yeah. And and you know, it it developed some good habits of for for my personal health, you know, I my mental health and my physical health, you know, to do some exercising that has been very helpful to me. But, um, but that experience is very odd. It's very strange to, to just see yourself change that much. Um, in a physical to be confronted sense. with your own biology like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that's, you know, that tactile changes. I've, I've, had it myself i fluctuate weight all the time Mm -hmm. and just before i went on this holiday you know i was sliding into a a a kick of losing a bit of weight sure i was going back to work i was getting a bit more active wasn't treating myself very well it's probably very malnourished as well okay uh wasn't eating and stuff but you know preparing for a holiday could be very stressful when you've been working constantly sure and now that i'm here it got a little stressful every now and then as well but i'm eating all the food and and, you know just kind of chilling out and yeah i've gained quite a bit again i'm trying to get it off again but sure you're right that the feeling of just looking in that mirror and just kind of always checking who am i today yeah it's such an interesting experience And, and you know I like to use the term like you have dysmorphia and of course you have dysphoria as well. Right, right. Uh, I kind of suffer from that from time to time too. Mm-hmm. And that that feeling of just 
either being repelled by what you see or more what you're kind of talking about too is just this confrontation of the reality of the situation you could be like man i look awesome and then think about like so why didn't i feel like i looked awesome two days ago right what the hell happened yeah yeah and it's so weird to think that just water retention or gas or just (laughs) your muscle tone things like this your posture they all affect your perception on your i guess comfort within your own skin yes it's an incredible feeling so i I get where you're coming from because i've also had the 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 weight loss uh not that not that fast i think but just having kind of gone through it i don't know yeah you said if even if it's a positive thing there's this kind of uh acceptance of your body in a biological way which does make it kind of weird again (laughs) It, it does it does you know and uh, towards the end there, I was like, I, I became obsessed with, you know, getting to the point where, you know, I was lean enough to actually have a six pack abs. Right. You know, nice. Which, which, you know, it, 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 but it just became this sort of weird obsession. It's like, I'm so close. I'm so close. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. But yeah. then it was just like, but when you get there, what does it really matter? What now? <laughs> you know, what does it really matter even, you know? And so it, it was, it was, um, it's, it's just an odd experience. And I think this movie, uh, is the one that just kept coming to my mind more than anything else. You know, I didn't mm. think of, you know, thinner or something. Cause that was, I don't know. That didn't seem to, I don't know. It's, I, I wasn't thinking of, of some of the, maybe more obvious choices i guess it was always this movie it's got to be the way it's explored that that yeah. subtlety that we're talking about and this gradient mm-hmm. of just watching somebody go like huh since you know cronenberg coming at it just trying to show even like the aging process just yeah. like when you get that gray hair the first time yeah and you're like, it's over because <laughs> you don't know why but you're just like uh, my body just did a huge change, mm-hmm. and I didn't sign off on it. And now I'm starting to really understand that I don't have control over this. Well, and you know, even during that time too, I was, I, I was probably going through a bit of a midlife crisis too, because you know, I was like, you know, I think I'm going to start using Rogaine. You know, so I started, <laughs> you know, because I was losing my hair, right? So I, so I tried that, and it, and it helped. And then, you know, after after a while, I was just like, why am I doing this? Who cares if I'm bald? I don't care anymore. Mm. And so I just gave up on that and just sort of uh, let things <laughs> progress naturally, I guess. Um, but it's it's just, I, I think there's sort of this obsession, you know, and you talked about aging, you know, of holding on to youth, you know, of holding on to, um, or, or of being sort of, physically attractive even if it's only Mm -hmm. matters so much in the long run you know um so it was it was a odd experience i mean i'm i'm trying now my my focus is much more health oriented than you know physically Mm -hmm. you know i'd like to lose a few pounds that kind of thing whatever that's not the point though anymore it has more to do with um just sort of uh, managing elements of 
mental health and you know just i like mm-hmm. i i've gotten to the point where i enjoy working and, and lifting weights and doing some of that stuff um and i just know i feel better you know with certain eating a certain way and that kind of stuff so it's the right. focus has shifted immensely so there's not that same kind of sort of intense obsession with just the aesthetics of it all um but i think this movie looks at some of those obsessions with the aesthetics Mm -hmm. (laughs) in an interesting way and the mental health aspect does shine through especially as as you were saying like that scene with the the insect politics yeah how He's saying he doesn't have morality, but we know that he does have this human empathy because he wouldn't be telling her this otherwise in the way that he's telling her. That exploration in that scene is, you know, he has completely just gotten over the fact that he's hideous. Mm-hmm. He's just like, this is who I am. This is how I am. I don't know what I am yet. So he's still figuring that out. But is that not the human condition where we're constantly going, who am I? What am I? What does it mean to be human? Yeah. And when we have those thoughts, we, you know, we kind of freak out, we brush our teeth, we leave the mirror. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. it's it's a thing that only humans really, I think, contemplate. Probably. We don't know. We can't ask like a cat. But right. I, <laughs> right. it's, but it's just something that is a very human thing to tap into. And... You mentioned other films that aesthetically do explore these things, Mm -hmm. but I can see why The Fly, just on that thinking level, verbal level, is the one that kind of hits that chord, because it's the one that's trying to make you think that way. It is. It is. And I think it's it handles so many of its uh, sort of issues and the things it's trying to discuss in such an interesting multifaceted way, you know, I mean, it hits on some pretty hot button issues. I mean, you're talking things like, you know, the abortion issue, you're talking, Mm -hmm. you know, euthanasia, you know? Yeah. I mean, those were, I mean, in 1986, I mean, that was the hottest of the hot button period for these issues, you know? Yes. And uh, I find that, so fascinating the way that Cronenberg approaches them. You know, it, it's visceral in a lot of ways, you know, mm. how yeah. how it's done. It's like, you know, she has no choice. But, I mean, the, like, the way it, it handles the euthanasia issue, you know, obviously, um, Brundlefly at the very end is is in terrible pain and he's going to die. And she's like, no, I, I can't do that. You know, I can't yeah. do it. You know, and he's, and he's just like, please. And so when you, ha- when it's, when it's this creature, it, it, it's puts such an interesting perspective on it, you know? Um, and then of course the yeah. abortion issue, the, this idea of, I don't know what's inside me. Oh, then we get into the biology thing again yeah. as well. It's like when you just think about childbirth like that, yeah. of like there's just something that forms inside of you. Yeah. It's like, whoa, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. It's um, it's handled in a really fascinating way, and yeah. and I think you can, uh, and you know, it 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 has a point of view without being in, I guess, for lack of a better term, preachy about it. 
you know, mm, you, I see what you mean. Yeah. You know, it's, it just kind of, um, says this is, this is the situation, <laughs> you know, what, what would pretty much, you know, yeah. what, what would you do? You know, what, uh, and it doesn't tell you, you know, is this right or wrong? I mean, and of course it goes on to the fly too, which, you know, we know that she does have a baby, but, um, oh. but let's pretend that's not, you know, canon and <laughs> just, just uh, this is how it ended you yeah, know exactly. i have a soft spot for the fly too i don't think it's a great movie but i think it's kind of fun <laughs> you know i have that with so many sequels i can yeah. just see them not as canon and still love them for what they are yeah. you know yeah and in this case i don't feel it says much about this original film at all i like that the film does just keep you going like holy crap we don't even know what she did with the baby yeah I know, I know. I uh, like I said, that ending is just—it ends where it should. It does. It lets you fill in the blank on your own, um, however you choose. And I find that more interesting uh, when you have a sort of semi-ambiguous ending. You know what uh, what is going to happen is up to you, a little bit mm-hmm. of, as a viewer. You know, and I I, I like when filmmakers allow the audiences to sort of participate in how the story continues you know yeah and and on to your point about it you know quote-unquote preachiness you know there's no finger wagging no in the no, film. no not at all. that's not however right. what cronenberg does do really well is if there is a stance on something it's kind of tonal yeah in the film uh-huh it's just like He's just kind of guiding you to, well, the, here we, we come back to, to disgust, you know, it's a tool to really make you be repelled by something. Uh-huh. So that way, there's no commentary there necessarily. You can read into it if you really think about why did I feel that way? But that's the whole point. It's a reactive you know, mode that they put you into because they, they put, they make sure in the tools that they're using that you just go with your feelings mm-hmm. and then... Hey, if you happen to feel a completely different way, it, it it will always say something about you because you have a different perspective that makes you go, oh, uh, and then, you know, that's the whole point that the movie just ends at that point And you kind of go, I guess we have to have a conversation about what we just watched. Yeah, because exactly. people need to kind of process what they just saw. Yeah. And I, again, I love a movie that sparks a conversation. Oh yeah. You know, um, to me that is that is such an interesting and so much more participatory version of filmmaking you know Mm -hmm. um a a movie that just kind of says here here's our here's our ending and we're not going to tell you anymore discuss (laughs) you know (laughs) begin yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, there you go. That's that's it's almost like a writing prompt or something like that. <laughs> you know, here, um, here's here's our idea. Now you you go work on it on your own and and uh, and just whatever you come up with, I'm sure is great. You know, <laughs> exactly. And look at this. And this is why we are in the field that we're in. This is the work that you do regularly for Bloody and for all the other uh, outlets that you are a part of as well. And uh, it's because of especially not just but especially this genre yeah. at its core even if it's the most fun high five you know slapsticky slasher film out there or something sure. 
sparks a discussion. Yeah. And I, I love that there's so much to say. There's a lot more to say. I, I do think... Well, I don't know if there's anything else in particular that you wanted to bring up about this film before we wrap up. Uh, No, I mean, I, I just... I wanted to bring in just sort of that personal little I appreciate that feeling I, I hope that it comes across in the way it's intended it's hard to talk about some of those sorts of things and and be you know fully articulated in the, in the way right that you mean it's to. a very vulnerable state yeah. I think it's really you know awesome of you to really share that with everyone and that's also why I try to bring in my relatability to it not just to, to you know take away from the personal just to also make clear that you know others share it for sure and I, I I personally read it as just like I, I that's why I use the term confrontation. It's really just this this the way we are suddenly experiencing ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, and you can only discuss it in that way. Yeah. So I appreciate you bringing that in. Yeah, sure. I'm. I, I it's one of those things that I'm. I'm sometimes nervous to talk about, but I'm I'm uh, mm. hoping that you know it maybe gives someone a sort of reading of the film that maybe they hadn't considered or something. Yeah. It might just also make them feel not alone. There you it's go. Also That's a wonderful thing. Even better. Yeah. <laughs> well, then I am going to wrap things up. All right. This podcast is sponsored by Logic Locks. Logic Locks creates and facilitates immersive real-life games for the masses. Is your company looking for an activity to do for your next team outing? Play their online game show experience, no pants required. Looking for a fright? Follow a curious researcher into the depth of the Amsterdam catacombs from the relative safety of your own home. Check out LogicLocks.com for more information. The Beauty of Horror is also proudly sponsored by the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. For more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts like this one, be sure to check out anatomyofascream.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter, which is at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, shockaholic.org. But dear listeners, I really, really want to know... What are your thoughts on Cronenberg's The Fly? I'd love to hear from you on Twitter at beautyhorrorpod via email beautyofhorrorpod at gmail.com. And there's also Discord and Instagram. You can just find us all over the place. So please reach out, say hello, and tell us what you thought about The Fly in this discussion. I want to thank you again, Brian, for sitting down with me. Not just because it was so last minute, but also because I've been really looking forward to this discussion for a long time. And it has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, me too. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. An, an absolute treat. So, yeah, my pleasure for sure. I, I want to know, though, uh, and for everybody at home who's listening, where can the people find you? And you've already plugged a little bit, but please replug. What other things would you like to mention and then how they can find you on the interwebs? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Brian D. Kuiper, uh, K-E-I. <laughs> uh, that name is often mispronounced as we mentioned earlier, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, and um, well, a couple of things uh, I had a piece that I'm very proud of uh, go up recently um, on manner vellum. Uh, it's manner vellum.medium.com. You'll be able to find it there. Uh, and on midnight mass, uh, it 
got, it oh. actually got Mike Flanagan's attention, uh, and oh, he shared it. I saw that, yeah. and it was that was one of the most amazing things that has ever happened to me <laughs> uh, in this whole writing field thing. Um, also, uh, my column on Bloody Disgusting is called Gods and Monsters. If you're into classic horror, uh, I also tend to write uh, some tributes to various horror icons. Uh, I just recently had published. Uh, for his 96th birthday, a piece on Roger Corman uh, that I hmm. just had a blast doing. So there's that. Also, I uh, am very proud of our uh, of the podcast I do with Michelle Egan uh, called Movies for Life. And uh, you can find that at Movie Life Pod on Twitter. Uh, we've got, we cover all kinds of genres. Uh, we do cover horror sometimes. We've done episodes on Godzilla and Tremors and Child's Play 1 and 2. Um, before long, we're going to be talking about Wes Craven's new nightmare. We've already talked about A Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, several others uh, and all kinds of movies all across the spectrum. So um, check us out if wherever you find your podcast. <laughs> That's the Movies for Life podcast. You're, you're a busy dude, and you've got a lot of great stuff going on. We'll make sure that in the show notes you can find links to these articles and, of course, to find the podcast. So we'll make sure that we we can find it nice and easily. And do be sure to follow Brian on all of his socials so you can keep track of all the wonderful work that he's doing. And, of course, I want to thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the disgust that lurks within the horrible goodbye. There's no beauty here.